right. How are you guys doing? Doing good. We may try to we may try to change up the style a little bit tonight, just because it is a smaller group. So I may try to throw in a few questions, a little more act, interactive stuff tonight. So if I throw out a question, um, you know, feel free to answer out loud. All right, so here we go. Everybody have your sheet? Everybody ready? You ready? Say I'm ready. ready. All right. Well, you know, happy Easter, guys. Happy Easter. Thank you. All right. Happy Easter. I know that, you know, Easter technically was Sunday, but really for us, think about it. Think about it for Christians. Like, Easter isn't just one day a year. Like, Easter is every day, right? Because what we're celebrating is you know, Christ is resurrected from the dead. Like, Jesus is alive, and so we know that, you know, he's alive every single day, right? And so we can celebrate that every day. And so, in a sense, for us, I mean, Easter is every day because we know that Christ was risen from the dead. He was resurrected, right? He is alive. And so for us, we know that, right? And so when we read the Bible, we have that in our mind, that he rose from the dead, he's alive, he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. We know this, but the disciples in John chapter 14 they didn't know this yet. Like, they were unaware that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead, or at least they didn't really fully understand what that meant, okay? So what they were in the middle of was this conversation between Jesus and them, which they thought was going to be like the last conversation they were going to have with Jesus. Because Jesus had just basically explained to them, I'm about to die, I'm about to be killed, and so they're thinking, this is the last time we might talk to Jesus. And this is even more significant than just maybe um, a deathbed conversation. You know what I'm talking about? Like if somebody's on their deathbed, it's really important to hear and remember what they have to say. Right? Because think about it. They're reflecting back on their entire life. All that they've learned and experienced, all the wisdom that they've gained and they're trying to share something with you. It's like, to them, the most important thing they could ever say to you. But this is even more significant because for the disciples, they had just spent the last few years with Jesus. And so now they had given up everything to follow him. And so now they're thinking, not only is what he's saying really important, but, man, we've given our entire life for this. And so what are we going to do now, right? So imagine being one of these disciples. Imagine you gave up everything about your life, your, your, your job and your family and everything else. You gave up everything. And for the last few years, you've been learning and trying to soak up every bit of knowledge from this person, from Jesus, right? You've seen him perform miracles. He's healed people. He's fed thousands of people. He's cast out demons, he's walked on water, he's done all these amazing things. And imagine how much anticipation you would have for what would have been in the future. Because they're thinking, this is King Jesus. He's going to rise up and become the king of Israel. He's going to overcome Rome. Uh, overcome Rome. And they're thinking, man, I'm going to have a place in his kingdom. Where's my place going to be? They had this conversation. 
And so imagine now for the disciples, whenever Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I'm about to actually leave you. I'm going to be killed. Okay? Imagine what they must have felt in the moment. And so what we have in John 13 through 17, what we've called, you know, this series, The Last Conversation, it is the last conversation Jesus would have before he would be crucified. Not the last thing he would ever say to them, but they had that in their mind, that this might be the last thing that Jesus says to us. So we're picking up tonight, uh, John 14, verses 25 to 31. It should be um, on your page for you to follow with me. We're going to read it all the way through, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So it says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. So this is Jesus talking. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you'll have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. All right, now, whenever you study the Bible, there are some steps that, that you want uh, to take. First is to consider the context, okay? And so that would include things like who the author is, who the audience is, uh, when is this, where is this, what situation is taking place. And in, in a sense, I, I, we, I gave you a little bit of that, right? It's Jesus having this conversation with his disciples before the crucifixion. And so we've covered that a little bit. But the next step would be just to simply look at what the text says, all right? To not jump straight into, you know, what does this mean for me or what do I do with this? Because if you don't do that second step of just what plainly does it say, then you could misunderstand what it might mean for you or what you should do with it. So a lot of the focus of what we have like on your, on your sheet is just some notes about this is directly what Jesus is saying. Now, there are a few little things here and there, and I'll point those out, that he doesn't say that are implications of what he's saying. But for the most part, we're taking notes on what does Jesus say in this passage, and then we can consider at the very end what this might mean for us. All right, so if you would follow along, and it should be on the screens as well, we've got before his death, Jesus leaves his disciples with an inheritance, okay, with an inheritance. So whenever somebody would die, they would leave whatever they might have, you know, whatever uh, money or property, they would leave that to their heir. And so in a sense, Jesus is doing that right here. Uh, but he doesn't leave money, right? He leaves something better. He leaves what his disciples would need, okay? And I guess for my, for my daughters, I might have to try to uh, use this on them, right? Because I'm not going to be leaving a lot of money. And so I might have to say, oh, here's what I am leaving you. It's a lot of love, okay? So hopefully they appreciate that. Um, so Jesus leaves something better. Two things, okay? First, 
is he says he was leaving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's your first blank. Number one, the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit. And there are a few things we want to point out that he says about the Holy Spirit. The first might seem really obvious and almost redundant because it's in his name. But I wanted to point this out. I want you to write in A. It says he is holy. First, that he is holy. And this is actually huge. And you might go, well, that's, yeah, it's in his name. Of course, he's holy. God's holy. But actually consider this. Okay, now what's it mean to be holy? Okay, you said perfect, pure, good. What's it mean to be holy? What's that word mean? What's it mean to be holy? Yes. All right, good. Without sin. All this is correct. Anything else? You said pure. That's right. What? Part of God? Yeah, it's definitely part of God. And so think about it like this. All of what you said is right. But to be holy is to be set apart, okay? To be set apart or distinct, to be different, right? And if you think about God, he is completely holy in that way. He is unlike us. He's unlike people. He's unlike anything in creation. He's completely set apart and like everything you said, perfect and holy and righteous, right? He's holy, Okay, now, there's a famous story in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, he has this vision of God. Okay, so he kind of sees God like in his glory, seated on a throne, and there's all this crazy stuff happening. And there are these angels that are just declaring, they're like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They just keep shouting how holy God is. And do you know what Isaiah's reaction was? It says that he kind of like, he, he basically falls down and he makes this statement. He says, he says, woe is me, which is like, oh no. And he says, for I am ruined. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So his reaction, even though we've got this prophet, man of God, probably a very righteous guy, when he gets just a vision of how holy God is, he thinks it's to his destruction. When he says, woe is me, I'm, a, I'm ruined, right? And so he thought maybe that he was, that was it for him, that maybe he was going to die because he sees the holiness of God and he realizes his sinfulness, okay? So considering that, think about how crazy this idea is. Now, in this passage, Jesus doesn't say in this one that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us and live in us, but in other places, he does and definitely in the rest of the New Testament. So think about this idea that the Holy Spirit, okay, the Holy Spirit would make his dwelling place in you and in us. Think about what that means. Think about what that says about what Christ has done for us and in us. That for Isaiah, he's thinking, oh, I'm ruined because God's holy. But now for us, right, the Holy Spirit lives in us, makes his dwelling in us. That means that Christ has made us holy and us righteous so that God can live in us. It's amazing to think about what God has done in that way, that he would be dwelling in us, right? 
And so think about this question. And this is just kind of more of a rhetorical one. But consider this. Do you consider what kind of dwelling place you're giving the Holy Spirit? Think about that. Do you consider the kind of dwelling place you're giving the Holy Spirit? And you know, whenever I was thinking about this and studying this, to be honest, I usually don't think about it like that. When it comes to the way that I live, usually it's like, well, you know, God doesn't want me to do certain things because they're sinful, or God wants my, my, wants my joy, and so I don't want to do certain things because it'll rob me of joy. But man, I usually don't think about it like this. Like, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. What kind of temple am I providing for the Holy Spirit? Right, so think about that. Okay, so we have A, he's holy. B, he's our helper. He's our helper. That's what Jesus says in this passage. All right, so think about it. Why would the disciples need a helper? Why would, and this is where, yeah. They're going to go through tough times, okay? That they will do. We will talk about this. Because, yes, because he's about to go away. It's a crazy thing in John chapter 16. He actually says, it's to your, talking to his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. Right? So he actually says, it's going to be better that the Holy Spirit's here than for me to be in your presence. Man, most of us wouldn't think about it like that, would we? If we had the choice, we'd want Jesus right beside us. But Jesus himself says, it's going to be better for the Holy Spirit to be with you. Okay? So they're going to face tough times. Jesus is not going to be with them. And then what else? What, they would, what would they need help with? Yes, we will get to that. Very good. Recalling. What's he calling them to do? Yeah, to, to make disciples, right? To make disciples. And so they know that ultimately they're going to be called to do something that they can't do on their own power, right? They're, that's what the calling is on them, that they're going to have to do things that they can't do on their own. So they need the supernatural help of God, and the Holy Spirit's going to provide that help. And so think about that for you, right? Why do you need a helper? Why do you need the Holy Spirit as your helper? Well, for the same reason, as a disciple of Jesus, you're called to make disciples and do things that are outside of your natural power. You need supernatural power to just do something like bring people into a relationship with Christ. You can't do that on their own, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be a part of that. So think about this question. Again, this is just rhetorical. Are you living in a way that requires supernatural help? Are you living in a way that requires supernatural help? Or do you kind of have everything taken care of on your own? If you're not, then that's saying something about maybe the way you're living your life or the fact that maybe you're not trying to make disciples or be about the mission of the kingdom of God. Okay? So again, are you living in a way that, that needs the Holy Spirit's help? All right, C, Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, he says, that he's sent by the Father, that he's sent by the Father, 
And so just a quick point here. Uh, we see the, the Trinity at work, okay? We see each person of the Trinity. So we believe in, in one God that is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person being God, co-equal, that they work together. And so in this situation here, we see all three um, at work. Um, so he's sent by the Father. D, we have that he's our teacher. Jesus says he is our teacher. And so what the Holy Spirit is going to do, he's going to continue the teachings of Jesus. You need to know that the Holy Spirit, he doesn't contradict, ever contradict the teachings of Jesus. And so if you're ever wondering, is this God speaking to me and it goes against something that the Bible teaches, you can know that that's not God speaking to you, right? That's not the Holy Spirit. He doesn't contradict the teachings of Jesus. Um, for many of us, you know, sometimes, especially at your age, I remember this, and it's still true for me sometimes now, but I definitely remember trying to read and study the Bible and then quickly, you know, just maybe not understanding it or not fully, you're just feeling intimidated or overwhelmed and then giving up quickly, you know? Do you, have you, any of you guys ever experienced that? Kind of feel that frustration? Just me? Okay, all right, yeah, let's be honest, okay? Yeah, that's definitely the case. And so what we see here is Jesus says, no, the Holy Spirit, he can be your teacher. And so instead of just relying on your own power or your own understanding when it comes to something like studying the Bible, we need to start relying more so on the Holy Spirit, okay? And so what we need to do is, and there's no kind of real trick to this, right? But it's just stay after it. Right? And so when it comes to, hey, I'm going to study the Bible today, I'm going to read a passage today, it's taking a moment to say, Holy Spirit, will you teach me? Will you help me to understand? And then sticking with it. And what you'll find out is even though maybe at first it seems like, well, I'm not really getting this, but if you stick with it, the Holy Spirit will continue to teach you and you'll find out that if you look, look back on whatever the last few weeks, you'll realize that you've learned some really significant things. Right? If you walk into a, any class, a class at school, on day one, do you know everything that that class is about? Definitely not. It's a process, right? And there are going to be times where you feel like you don't understand it. But the job of the teacher, hopefully, is to help you understand what you're supposed to be learning, right? Well, that's the, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. He'll be your teacher. So you just got to trust in that and continue in it. Don't give up right? Rely on his power. And then E, Jesus says that he reminds us of the word. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the word. All right, now, remember how I said you have to understand kind of the context of what's going on? Well, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and we got to remember that first and foremost, he's talking to a specific group of people, okay? So, the idea behind this is more directly that Jesus is saying to them, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of what I'm teaching. Why? Because you're going to be writing the Gospels, right? You're going to be writing part of the Bible, and you need to remember this, okay? So that's the more direct meaning of this, that the Holy Spirit's going to remind these disciples of the teachings of Jesus, and especially we've got right here these teachings of Jesus in this conversation. They obviously remembered it, didn't they? Right? John did. And so we see proof there 
that the Holy Spirit would remind him. But there's also implications for us as disciples, that whenever we learn the word of God, that whenever we learn the teachings of Jesus, that we'll be reminded of those things as well, okay? Whenever we're in a difficult situation or whenever we're having a conversation with somebody and we're trying to tell them about Jesus, you're going to be amazed that there are going to be things that you're reminded of. There are going to be scriptures that you thought you didn't even, you never realized you memorized, but that stuff's going to come back up and you're going to realize that the Holy Spirit has been reminding you and teaching you of the Word of God, okay? So that's, that's number one. The Holy, the God, uh, or Jesus, excuse me, uh, gives an inheritance of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, uh, number two, is he says he's going to leave them with peace, okay? With peace. Leaving them with peace. And this is something, man, this is peace. This is something that, this is something that people are longing for, right? Especially today, to have peace, to have, you know, peace of mind. And so we'll look at more fully what this means, but first I want you to write with A, it's Jesus' peace. Jesus' peace. In verse 27, he calls it my peace. And this is crazy to think about. Really consider this. That would be like Bill Gates, like on his deathbed going, hey, I'm going to leave you with my money, right? That's a whole different deal than if I say it, right? And Jesus says, I'm leaving you with my peace. This is a, a, a level of peace that uh, we have a hard time understanding. Jesus' peace. And this word, peace, uh, it's Irene in Greek. I don't really know how to say it well, which is the same as shalom in Hebrew. And this is a really, really loaded word. It's usually translated with using the word peace, but there's so much more. And to help you um, kind of get a grasp on what this word means fully, um, there's a short video that I want to show you guys, and um, it'll explain uh, the true kind of full context of the word shalom. All right, we got it. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. 
The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. All right, pretty cool, huh? All right, so let's, uh, because of the kind of a lack of time, we'll try to go quickly through the rest. Um, what you have by number one in, in quotes is that this peace is, or shalom is, the way it should be, okay? A way you can think of it is the way it should be. That's this peace. Whenever things are in right order, you can think of maybe like Genesis 1 and 2, how God creates everything. It's in all in perfect peace, in harmony. It's the way it should be. That's the word that describes it all, that word shalom. Included in that, number two, we've got, that includes peace with God. Okay, peace with God. Let me read to you Romans 5.1. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the, blood of his, by the blood of his cross. And so we have peace with God, and this is one thing that Jesus is extending. But also, number three, peace with our conscience. Peace with our conscience. One thing that's really freeing about becoming a Christian is to do that, to become a Christian, and especially to be baptized in front of other believers is a way for us to say, like, look, I, I have messed up and I have sinned. I'm a confessing sinner and I needed God's grace to save me. And so in that way, it's a really freeing thing to publicly acknowledge that that's who you are, that you needed a Savior. And in Romans 8, it talks about how, you know, for us, for the believer, for those with faith, there's no more condemnation 
uh, for those in Christ Jesus. So we have peace with our conscience. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. It's all removed. And then next it says, peace that transcends circumstances. Peace that transcends circumstances. And so that idea of transcending your circumstance, it doesn't mean, you know, I'm not in that circumstance anymore. It doesn't mean I've overcome it. It doesn't mean I've beaten it. It doesn't mean that, you know, I've avoided it. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means while you're in the midst of that difficult circumstance, your experience of peace, Jesus' peace, that, that sees through it all, right? There's a peace in the midst of whatever circumstance it is. And so if you think about for the disciples, you know, it's like, why would they need this? Why would they need a peace that transcends all circumstances? Well, like what was mentioned before, they were about to experience some difficult things, right? They, you know, for a lot of, for these disciples, if you look at, you know, verses 28 to 31, it talks about, Jesus says, yes, I'm about to leave you. That was going to be difficult for them. Jesus talks about how there's a ruler of the world. And we might think, well, wouldn't that be Jesus? But Jesus is talking about how the enemy, that Satan was going to be the ruler of the world, that for a temporary amount of time he would have dominion over the world. And so that's a scary thing. If you think about the rest of the disciples' lives, you know, even though they live these, these lives of faith and they were fully committed to making disciples and growing the kingdom of God, things ended really badly for them. So just listen to this. Andrew, he was crucified. Bartholomew, he was beaten, then crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, he was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. John was exiled to the island of Patmos and, and died at an old age. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, he was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death. Peter was likely crucified upside down. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Matthias was stoned to death. We've got disciples like one after another. Things ended really badly for them, right? They didn't have a peace because their life was awesome. They had a peace because the Holy Spirit provided this power and this peace that transcends all circumstances. You know, and you've maybe heard the story of, of the famous hymn, that, the hymn, It Is Well, right? Do you remember that story? Where you've got this man who, you know, his family um, was sailing on a ship over to Europe, and then on the way they get in, the, the ship crashes, and his wife ends up being alive, but they, they lose their four daughters in this shipwreck. Right, And then so you've got, now he's trying to travel over there to meet up with his wife. And, and in the midst of all that, he writes, the, uh, he writes that, that hymn. And here are some of the, the verses. It says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, meaning whatever happens, thou, talking about God, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so what we see that Jesus says that this, and this is the next part, this is not the world's peace. This is not the world's peace. Because the world's peace, it's based on things like distraction, deceit, ignorance, and avoidance of trouble. And so, so often, that's what the world's going to present to you. That instead of looking at the truth of the situation you're in, or lo really looking at life, the world will tell you, hey, just Hey, be distracted by something else. Maybe it's, you know, 
Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's uh, you know, drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's whatever it is. Or just don't think about it. That's what the world will say. Just you know, think about other things. Don't worry about the truth. But, but that's not the peace that Jesus offers, right? The peace that Jesus offers transcends circumstances so that no matter what you face, you'll have peace in the midst of it, okay? So there's, a, there's kind of a, a choice you have to make. Is which is it going to be? Which do you want more? Do you want the peace that Jesus provides or do you want the peace that the world offers? Let me pray for you guys. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we're so thankful that you offer the Holy Spirit and all that he is to us and for us. And we're thankful for the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so I pray that we would realize that this is just a, a treasure that we can, we can hardly fathom. And so I pray that we would want that. We would, we would want the peace that only you can provide. And so please give that to us, that no matter what we're facing, no matter what we walk through, that in the midst of it, we'll, we'll have that peace and we'll see you and that you'll be what we set our, our minds and our hearts on. That we love you and we pray this in Christ's name.